I'm Kevin Barrett, and you're listening to Truth Jihad Radio. No commercials, no foundation sponsors, 100% crowdfunded since 2010. If you want to support this kind of radio and get early access to the shows, please go to kevinbarrett.substack.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's live broadcast of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett. The rain has stopped beating on my metal roof. So sorry about that if you enjoyed that background music. And uh, you may also hear me sort of making swallowing noises because I'm breaking the fast uh, of Ramadan even as I talk. So that's what's happening here in beautiful southwestern Wisconsin at the undisclosed location from which I broadcast and the well-disclosed location on the Internet where you can listen is kevinbarrett.substack.com. Please do subscribe and get early access to the archives of these shows and all kinds of other great stuff. Well, let's get going with the second hour tonight. I was really lucky to get two of the best writers in the alternative media on tonight's show. The first hour, we had Edward Curtin talking about his new piece. And now let's move on to Max Perry who just put out a really good piece on Alexander Dugan and the origins of the Red-Brown Alliance myth. And I take this thing kind of personally, both because I met Alexander Dugan in Tehran and hit it off with him, really liked him. You know, we both, you know, were influenced by René Guénon and had certain things in common. And I don't totally relate to all of his writing, but I, I basically like the guy and find his writing useful overall. And then, to see him targeted and his beautiful daughter, Daria Dugina, murdered by these pro-Ukrainian, whatever you want to call them, was that kind of pissed me off. And I, I kind of take that personally. I also take the red-brown thing personally because I've been attacked by people like Alexander Reed Ross, who wrote a whole book about the red-brown thing. And he's a red, a communist or a leftist, who thinks that anybody of that ilk who associates with those of us who are, what, uh, criticizing capitalism from a perspective that I guess is outside of their party line, uh, are in fact fascists or, you know, in the, the communists who associate with those of us who he calls fascists are equally fascist. And so it's a big smear job. But ultimately, what is it really all about? It looks to me like it's all about propping up neoliberalism. And it, that seems to be what Max Perry is arguing as well in this article. But let's hear it from him. So bring him on. Welcome, uh, Max. How are you? I'm doing great, Kevin. Uh, thank you very much for uh, your praise of my piece and for inviting me on. It's it's great uh, to have the opportunity to talk to you. I've followed your work for a while, and you know we've been uh, co-writers on uh, owns.com for and uh, appeared on Press TV. But I've never actually gotten the chance to talk to you. Um, uh, much less about such a rich subject like this. So I'm glad uh, the piece uh, resonated with you enough to to invite me on here. So it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's, it's good to have you. I probably should have invited you a long time ago because you're doing really good work. And this piece is a, is a classic example of that. And, you know, I, I've had this problem with Alexander Reed Ross and his disciples out in Portland for, I think, a decade or so, because it, it was almost a decade ago when 
I gave talks in places like Portland and then got smeared by uh, the sort of proto-Antifa forces that he was involved with. And and then I ended up like actually getting banned from various events. And um, my friend uh, and co- colleague, the late John Shuck, who had a radio show in Portland, ended up get, losing his radio show because he insisted on having me on. And Alexander Reed Ross and his Antifa people insisted on not allowing that. So I've had this sort of ongoing thing going with, with him for all those years. And, of course, his message is that nobody on the left should ever have anything to do with Kevin Barrett. And no, that, that back 10 or 15 years ago, I thought I was sort of more on the left than on the right. So <laughs> well, what was the problem? Well, the problem is that I talk about 9-11 and these various other issues that for some reason they don't think that anybody on the left should ever talk about. Mm-hmm. But you you got a little more deeply into it, and I think you're on the right track with your analysis. So maybe you could just introduce that topic of of where these people are coming from with their red brown alliance thing. Well, I'm not surprised to hear that you have uh, your own history with Alexander Reed Ross. I mean, he's pretty much, uh, you know, his type, uh, along with the you know these proto Antifa people, as you described them really have become kind of like shock troops for the establishment and ultimately their form of uh, pseudo left politics, as I would refer to it, uh, really has become very, very useful to the, you know, the political establishment uh, because it uh, really, uh, you know, targets genuine uh, anti-imperialists or people who are anti-war or people who are anti-Zionist like yourself. and uh, it it pushes people, you know, it, it's he 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 very um, he's very useful to the establishment because he's able to be like sort of a left arm for the establishment in suppressing people who are uh, uh, anti-imperialist or or against uh, the Zionist uh, entity or um, trying to uncover the truth about 9-11 and, and on and on. Um, Alexander Reed Ross has been a around for a while. Um, I wasn't aware that you yourself had been targeted by him, but I'm not really surprised to hear that. Uh, but, you know, also uh, the Gray Zone did a pretty big expose on him uh, and how he has, uh, he's very closely linked actually uh, with the security state and he's worked with even uh, police and, you know, targeting, uh, you know, uh, people on, that he labels as far right. Uh, and I think ultimately he's working with them at the same time to go after uh, anti-imperialists and certainly people who uh, like myself uh, defend Russia uh, and, uh, you know, are uh, being critical of American foreign policy in this new cold war. And, um, yeah, I mean, Alexander Reed Ross is, you know, along with a few others, uh, have really become, uh, you know, kind of like attack dogs for for the uh, political establishment uh, on the left and uh, going after people like ourselves. Um, and uh, so he's uh, very uh, uh, instrumental in spreading this myth that uh, there is a uh, alliance, so to speak, um, between or a, a conversion convergence between 
uh, people on the far left, like myself, and people on the uh, on the right, as uh, you know, there there being this sort of um, I mean, it's sort of like another version of horseshoe theory um, that you know we're working together against the establishment, and that's sort of what's uh, really behind our politics and you know, there's that people like with political views like myself are really crypto fascists. Um, and so he's, it's scaremongering and uh, it's a very effective way of, uh, you know, providing left cover for imperialism and uh, neutralizing any kind of genuine uh, opposition to empire coming from the left. And instead uh, uh, what it's, what it's doing is uh you know, championing the, the suppression of free speech, getting people like yourself banned from uh, whatever it happens to be uh, college campuses, from uh, speaking in places or being smeared as uh, anti-Semitic or a Holocaust denier or whatever, uh, or myself as, a, you know, a, a apologist for, for dictators and, and so on and so forth. And it's not co not any coincidence that... Uh, all of uh, people like Reed Ross's views always directly fall in line with American imperialism. I mean, you never hear him talk about uh, Saudi Arabia. You never hear him talk about, uh, you know, he, he's actually really very much a, a, a liberal Zionist. Um, and so I would argue that he definitely uh, 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 provide, you know, certainly isn't very critical of Israel. I mean, he writes, he's written for a time for uh, an Israeli newspaper, actually. Um, Why doesn't that surprise me? Yeah, exactly. And so uh, he's really become, you know, he's he's a very important figure, and I wouldn't be surprised if if in the within the next couple of years there are more exposés about him because he's he's really a shadowy figure. I don't know uh, how he's gotten. Uh, I mean, he he has articles in the Daily Beast and um, Haaretz and and numerous other outlets, and you know he's been able to disseminate this theory. Um, you know, that uh, there's this uh, uh, unstated uh, secretive uh, alliance going on between uh, fascists and, and people who would, you know, self-identify as communists like myself, uh, which, of course, is com completely untrue. And, um, you know, uh, he's he's really uh, which is why I used uh, excerpts of an interview with him and, and, and uh, he really kind of provides the sort of what I would describe as a politically confused definition. And, uh, you know, he bases it on uh, a, a historical understanding of, of the last uh, century and world war two. And uh, I just, he's just a very uh, a key figure in, in how this whole phenomena this red brown uh, theory has has gotten uh, spread. It's the red brown scare, right? There used to be a red scare. Now it's the red brown scare. Yeah. And and you know, in the early the first hour, I was talking with Ed Curtin about the fact that a lot of people in the alternative media, as well as the establishment media, are undoubtedly on the payroll of some intelligence agency or other. And Alexander Reed Ross obviously isn't exactly alternative, but he's you know, he poses as a leftist. And yeah. 
for every, all these reasons you just described, I mean, he'd be at the very top of my suspects list of somebody who's working for, you know, CIA slash Mossad. It seems like there's some kind of overlap between, the, you know, the American and Israeli agencies where really the worst corruption happens, where, you know, Kennedys get killed and mm-hmm. trade centers get blown up and stuff. And, and that's exactly the people that he would seem to be representing. Yeah, it would not surprise me at all if, you know, he wasn't directly on the payroll of of uh, federal law enforcement or or an intelligence agency of come, some kind. Just just based on the way that his his ideas have gotten uh, spread spread so uh, prominently, um, and uh, you know that that gray zone expose, you know, I think was just really we're only getting the tip of the iceberg. I think there was a lot there's a lot more to be uncovered. And, you know, he's he's really uh, been very, very prolific in in uh, in disseminating this theory. And and even though he isn't really alternative, he has made his way into uh, alternative media. I mean, he was he was getting published at Counterpunch for a long time where this sort of thing really came to a head where, um, you know, and, and that that outlet, which used to be one of my favorite alternative media outlets, actually, when it was run by Alexander Coburn, you know, a lot of the people that write for owns.com like ourselves used to write over there and were subsequently uh, purged by a lot of the uh, editors, which followed. So um, I think that uh, he, he's really been able to infiltrate uh, the alternative media community and, uh, you know, online and in spreading this stuff on social media and, and uh, making people like ourselves a target. Yeah, no, I, I agree from <laughs> sad personal experience. Oh boy. So uh, it's, it's uh, interesting, isn't it? That these people on the left used to be the defenders of free speech, but the left was always, you know, the, I mean, along with economic justice, the left had like the, the two big issues that I remember from my leftist youth were, being against war and militarism and uh, authoritarianism and then also, you know, pro-free speech, which goes along with it. Because when you have war and militarism, then you have the state of emergency that, that crushes free speech. So it seems really interesting that today a lot of these people who sort of self-identify with the left in the same way that they self-identify with one of 38 flavors of gender or whatever. Uh, I mean, they, they're all but you know, cheerleaders for 30, war. I thought it was 36 genders. No, they just added two last night. You didn't hear oh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Actually, I, I think we're underestimating. I, I think that the college checklist that I read about not too long ago was something like 70 or 80 or somewhere up there. So, but yeah, that's what makes people leftist these days, apparently. And yeah. they also have to have to cheer for the latest American war. And and I don't quite understand how that happened. Yeah, and you've got the U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Blinken, uh, to, I, I guess it was yesterday now, uh, uh, tweeting of uh, about the Trans uh, Day of Visibility or whatever. I mean, it's just. Really, <laughs> well, really, isn't it the day of uh, what was it? That not revenge or mayhem or something, something yeah. like that, isn't it? Great timing with uh, recent events, of course, too. Yeah, yeah, day day of trans mayhem. That's what we do. <laughs> <Carnage>. <laughs> you know, I, I liked John Waters movies back before they were, you know, life. You know, back when life turned into a John Waters movie, I suddenly stopped liking those early John Waters yeah, movies. I feel the exact same way, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it used to be edgy. You know, it used to but be. Isn't kind it of, ironic that uh, you know a lot of these places that you know that, that were the site of the free speech movement in the 1960s, like Berkeley, California, when uh, you know some of these uh, uh, right-wing uh, uh, media figures or whatever you want to call them, you know, the Milo Yiannopoulos and the Gavin McInnes's of the world. Uh, came to appear, or the Jordan Petersons, you know, came to appear at to speak at Berkeley. They were they were banned, you know. I mean, uh, I'm no proponent of those people, but it's just so ironic that the left is now, uh, well, the so-called left is now protesting to have people banned from speaking at public at uh, college campuses at the very places where in the 1960s, you know, cops were wading into that with uh, sticks and clubs and everything else to uh, to stop the, the free speech movement. So it's just, it's just so ironic how the trajectory of, of the liberal left from the 1960s to now to the things that it's, uh, it's advocating. That's right. And, and you look at the history of this whole notion of, of red and brown, the red-brown scare, and I didn't realize that it was so rooted in the post-Soviet experience. You know, I would have said, well, it must have gotten started back in the sort of World War II period where you had the uh, the Stalin-Hitler entente and so on, but not so much. It turns out that a lot of this dates to the post-Soviet period that Alexander Dugan actually was involved in this period and, and in this, this whole uh, red-brown thing uh, arising. And what's interesting about that is that that was the period when the Russian people who had just overthrown communism suddenly kind of regretted it to a certain extent and realized that these neoliberal oligarchs were looting their country and knocking male life expectancy down almost a decade by just you know, crushing everybody in, in poverty and hopelessness as these oligarchs gobbled up everything that the people that regretted the end of communism or realized that this neoliberalism was even worse were, you know, they had different ideologies. Some of them were the old-fashioned card-carrying communists. Some of them were slightly, you know, a new breed of communist. And then some of them were more sort of traditionalist. And people like Alexander Dugan, you know, he's a traditionalist who believes that Eurasian peoples are naturally more communitarian than uh, coastal peoples who tend to be mm -hmm. more individualistic. And so he ended up having a lot in common with communists in terms of seeing, you know, that there have to be ways of putting the common good ahead of, you know, individual freedom to loot and plunder. Mm -hmm. And so that, it turns out, is now apparently sort of seen by people like, like, uh, like Reed Ross as where this evil red brown lines came from. And so they demonize uh, uh, people like Alexander Dugan. Yeah, that's uh, all the history that you just kind of uh, summarized there is really what I wanted to get into in this particular piece. You know, I'd, I'd previously written uh, another very lengthy article about the uh, history of red brownism and how it came about uh, in relation to uh, World War II. Uh, but uh, this, in this particular piece on Dugan, I, I really wanted to get into that history of how this sort of phenomenon came from a synthesis uh, of exactly what you're talking about, this major turning point in post-Soviet history where, you know, the, the Russian people were faced with this situation where this ideological vacuum is uh, how I described it, where, you know, on the one hand, you, the communist system had failed and collapsed. 
And then on the other hand, a lot of the people, including Dugan himself, who'd been, you know, an anti-Soviet dissident and and brought about that change, uh, were very, very quickly uh, uh, horrified at, at the introduction of the of free market and the damage that it did where, you know, the uh, the life expectancy was uh, for for Russian men was reduced by a full decade where you know, almost overnight, all the state-owned property was uh, uh, sold off uh, to the highest bidder and created this whole new class of uh, uh, ultra-wealthy oligarchs. And uh, he, so he, people like himself who had been, who had uh, hoped to have political reform uh, were quickly terrified uh, by the sort of monster that they'd created. Uh with this extreme shock therapy free market uh, system in Russia, uh, you know, with Western backing, of course. And so uh, out of that grew uh, a sort of, uh, you know, nationalistic driven uh, wide ranging alliance between uh, different political forces. Some of them were, uh, you know, the newly formed Communist Party of the Russian Federation and then on the other hand, you had, uh, you know, uh, conservative figures like uh, Dugan, and uh, they formed um, uh, what was called the National Salvation Front, uh, which, which again was a, a wide-ranging coalition. Uh, it had there was pan-Slavic uh, organizations, there was um, a Russian nationalist organizations, and then there was also, um, you know, the Russian Communist Party. And uh, they took to the streets when uh, Boris Yeltsin uh, consolidated power and, you know, used tanks on the parliament building. I mean, it's so ironic, you know, when you hear uh, Vladimir Putin described by Western commentators as a dictator when, you know, Yeltsin literally suspended law and order in the Constitution and, you know, declared himself uh, uh, leader of the country. Uh, even though the Soviet people had or the Russian people had voted for this anti-austerity coalition. And so anyway, uh, in the piece, I really tried to summarize how Dugan's politics uh, grew out of this this particular uh, period of turmoil where, you know, communism on the one hand failed. And then at the same time, this new uh, extreme free market capitalism, uh, you know, the restoration of of uh, capitalism in Russia uh, created a, a, an even bigger disaster. And from that sort of synthesis is why, you know, traditionalist conservative ideas suddenly became very appealing to the Russian people. Because, and that's also why you saw a very large resurgence of the Russian Orthodox Church as well. Um, you know, people were very desperate for, you know, answers to this, uh, to this crisis. And if you talk to any Russian person, uh, I know several personally who, lived through that era. And, um, you know, this is one of the reasons why Vladimir Putin uh, in the decade since is, is extremely popular because he's, uh, although there remains uh, a great deal of inequality in Russia, certainly, uh, and there's certainly a lot of political corruption in terms of, uh, you know, the life expectancy has gone back up, I believe almost a full decade. So it's back to what it was before uh, the 1990s. 
and uh, you know GDP has has gone back up, and uh, he he didn't uh, obviously didn't eliminate the privatization. It's still a very capitalist country, but he did lower the privatization. Um, you know, rebuilt back up uh, certain industries that had been totally decimated uh, by the uh, the shock therapy. Um, but that's one of the reasons why um, a leader like Putin has has been so uh, popular. I mean, he's been consistently polled at over 70 percent in Russia. Um, and so. But anyways, yeah, I, this is the sort of history that I wanted to get into. Um, I sort of got off track there a little bit. But basically from this period that Dugan's political history developed and I get into how at that time he was part of this particular faction that became uh, very, very important, um, the National Bolshevik Party, uh, which is something that's, a, it's a very bizarre phenomenon. It's something that's um, on a surface level, very misunderstood, especially in the West. I mean, one of the reasons that I started this article is because I myself had been referred to, you know, in a derogatory manner, manner by pseudo leftists uh, that I've encountered as, uh, you know, a nod, one of the slurs that you'll hear if you're a genuine anti-imperialist on the left in the United States today is you'll be called a uh, a Nazbol or uh, a Duganist. And I was called this on several occasions, despite never having read Alexander Dugan. Um, I mean, I'd read about him, but I'd never read his actual works like Foundations of uh, Geopolitics. And so when his daughter was assassinated you know, I was really horrified by what I saw. I said, you know what? I'm actually going to bother to get his work, read it myself, make my own judgments, you know, because I saw this debate happening online where certain commentators, like who I mentioned, one of whom, uh, Benjamin Norton, was referring to him as a fascist. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to see for myself. And that's sort of why I did this piece. I did a ton of research, um, and some of which I had actually done before the assassination occurred. But once once the assassin, I had been wanting to write about this for a while. But once the assassination happened of, his, of Daria Dugina, I decided I really wanted to write this piece. And so, um, well, ho hopefully they'll kind of realize that they're they're going to wish they hadn't done that because a lot of people are react that way, right? It, they they just they draw attention to the ideas of Daria Dugina and Alexander Dugan by by killing her and. You know, I mean, who who isn't naturally going to tend to feel sympathetic towards uh, this young, attractive young woman uh, who you know seemed very admirable in all ways, uh, and you know she's murdered so brutally right in front of her father. I mean, how could you not feel sympathetic for them? So I mean, it just seems yeah, I really felt for the guy when it when it happened. I mean, I just seeing the the footage, and uh, you know, just seeing the way people were almost trying to legitimate it. And um, and, you know, when I and not surprisingly, as I suspected, when I sat down and read, you know, two of his books and several of his essays that uh, although I didn't agree with everything he had to say, um, there was actually a great deal of overlap with my own political thought. And, um, you know, I found his, as you said, his writing to be very useful. I, I think that he has a lot of important things to say that people of all political stripes, you know, whether you're a Marxist or, or whatever, um, you know, anyone who's critical of empire from, from whatever, um, 
whatever side of the Overton window you're you're coming from, he has a, a tremendous amount of insight and analysis, especially when it comes to relations between the United States and Russia. And um, it's, it's he's certainly not a fascist uh, to anyone that has any kind of serious understanding or definition of what fascism is. I mean, if he's a fascist only if you're your uh, misconception of fascism is, you know, that anyone who thinks that, uh, you know, anyone who's, I mean, the liberal definition of, of fascism is, is so vague and broad these days. It's like anyone who um, thinks abortion should be illegal or anyone who uh, doesn't think that there are 36 genders or anyone who is remotely socially conservative in any way, basically most of the planet would be right. would qualified yeah. of course, as a fascist according to they've got, they've got the wrong word i mean they should, if they want to call you reactionary yeah that you know that that's a word that would be an insult from the left to call somebody reactionary but that would sort of make sense but fascist makes no sense at all yeah they don't have any real understanding of fascism um as a, certainly not any economic understanding i mean there's no doubt that dugan is uh, certainly a a conservative and he would say that himself um but there's a whole there's many different camps and schools of conservatism uh you know that fascism or or even uh you know conservatism uh is not just the undifferentiated mass there are many different philosophers and i tried to explain that in my piece uh, i'm not going to pronounce uh his name as well as you did at the beginning of this segment but like rene guanon and uh, Julius Evola and people like that, uh, there, there's a whole traditionalist camp uh, that Dugan fits much more into. Uh, and, you know, you could even argue that his, his thought in terms of relations to uh, Martin Heidegger, he's actually got, uh, in terms of his criticisms of, uh, of modernism, actually have a lot in common with some postmodern writers, um, you know, even I mean, even though it's coming from a conservative angle, his critique of modernity is 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 uh, there's a lot of overlap even with with postmodernists. So yeah, absolutely, and and I actually had thought that the postmodernists actually kind of won. Like when I was in the academy in the 80s and 90s, it seemed that you know there weren't a whole lot of true believing you know modernists uh, resisting the postmodern onslaught, and that you know the whole academy had kind of surrendered to that particular brand of nihilism uh which you know had its points i mean i actually i i you know personally i personally lost faith in nihilism and converted to islam but you know uh, not everybody went that far (laughs) but in any case yeah that it it's it's very odd that uh that that isn't recognized that it's kind of normal for for, for people to have lost faith in the modern project of perpetual progress and you know, making everything better through materialism-based technology. Yeah, I mean, Dugan's critiques of uh, technology really actually reminded me of um, Heidegger's essay on technology, like which I believe was one of his later essays. But it's been a long time since I was... Uh, a philosophy undergrad in, in college. So, um, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, Dugan, there's so much of his political history and Russia's political history in the 1990s that is so misunderstood in the West. 
And in this piece, I just tried to lay out as much of it as I could. I mean, 6,000 words is as much as I've ever written um, in any article. So, but even that, you know, there's still so much more ground to cover, but it, it really is uh, just a fascinating period um, and, and his whole political trajectory. I mean, the two different strains, I mean, um, I mean, most people when they use this term and, and people like Reed Ross, when they use the term Nasbol or Red Brown, I mean, they, they aren't even able to differentiate, you know, the difference between Dugan's own thought and, you know, the Eurasianist movement and the National Bolshevik Party, which are two completely different political strains, political movements. The only, yes, there's uh, the one connecting dot there is uh, Dugan's uh, role in both of them, but they're two very distinct groups and they can't even keep any aspect of his political history straight. So in this piece, I really tried to lay out and structure how his thought developed how his own thought develops from you know, his involvement in the National Bolshevik Party and how both of them did grow out of, you know, this um, this uh, monumental uh, historical period in Russia where one system collapsed and was replaced by another. And um, I, I just uh, that's the aspect of this, uh, the, the theory of a red brown of alliance that's being spread over here on the, in the West um, and how it's uh, this Russian political history is related, uh, especially now that we're the, the West has locked horns with Russia in this proxy war uh, in Ukraine right now. And uh, this sort of, uh, I really felt like it was important to write because this whole idea of a red brown Alliance is one of the things that's really uh, preventing there from being any kind of serious anti-war movement these days, from it, from uh, any kind of opposition to uh, American imperialism, which is really what's driving this new Cold War and this whole war in Ukraine that's going on. And, um, you know, uh, even though I myself don't speak Russian and, uh, and ha- have limited uh, resource capabilities just based on that alone, I I tried to as much as possible to flesh out this history and how, you know, it can it can help us uh, debunk these myths that are being spread by, you know, these uh, attack dogs for for the for the establishment, uh, you know, on the pseudo left, like Alexander Reed Ross and uh, Eric Dreitzer and and all the rest of them that are that are spreading this stuff. Uh, because it's based on a, a totally mis, total misunderstanding of not only World War II history, as I've written before, but also this history of, of Russia in the 1990s. Yeah, it sure seems like the pseudo left has pretty much swallowed up the left. Of course, that's probably because the pseudo left is pumped up with the steroids of you know money and connections and you know intelligence agency and think tank uh, kinds of uh, conspiracies. Let's face it. We live in a world full of conspiracies. That's kind of what we do. We all conspire yeah, with each other. Real ones. And if you try and uncover any of them, you get smeared and attacked and called this and called that. And, you know, red, brown uh, or, or Duganist or Nazbol or Strasserist or whatever it is uh, that they're, that's just the latest thing that they're throwing to smear people who, who are genuinely anti-war or anti-imperialist or anti-Zionist or whatever, whatever what have you. And, and I think it's ironic that Dugan has been smeared as you know fascist and authoritarian and all this sort of thing, when I think the 
best criticism of him that I've ever encountered, which comes from Charles Upton, the traditionalist Sufi, is that Dugan may be a little bit too tolerant and open to you know too many viewpoints, including some that uh, Upton and even I would you know strongly disagree with. In that you know I guess what up you know in Upton's critique, uh, the stronger part of it I guess was that. Uh, at some point, and maybe he was going back into Dugan's career to dredge this up, that uh, Dugan was trying to create some sort of united front that involved all sorts of groups and cultures and political tendencies resisting Western neoliberal hegemony. Mm -hmm. And he would invite into this big tent uh, everybody from the sort of Wahhabi Salafi type Muslims that Charles Upton really hates with some some reason and the like the satanic neo-pagan weirdos <laughs> of Europe uh, who dance around uh, phallic symbols and and do unspeakable things and and you know worship Satan or whatever so that, that uh, I guess Upton was trying to say that uh, Dugan you know wasn't really a good enough traditionalist Christian because he was like he was too open to these kind of satanic strands of bogus spirituality. And I think that, you know, that critique has some legitimacy from that traditionalist uh, Sufi Muslim perspective that Upton's writing from. But if the worst you can say about somebody is that they're you know, too tolerant and that their their big tent is too big, then you're not really casting them as an evil authoritarian, are you? No, if anything, it's just kind of showing that he maybe he's naive. I mean, I know he he's gotten a lot of criticism, and that's one of the reasons why you know, he's labeled a fascist, I think, is because of how loose he is with his political associations. Um, I did uh, listen, actually, to uh, some of the episode that uh, you had with Charles Upton. It was actually a very interesting discussion. Um, I would like to know when that period was that he was doing that with, you know, these sort of Takfiri or or Wahhabi types, because it might have been explainable by the I mean, I'm just guessing here the context of, you know, if it was taking place at the time of the uh, the Chechen wars, um, you know, at the time, I think he was still very much an opponent of the Russian government and not so much uh, someone like he is now where he's actually, you know, speaking out in in uh, support of uh, of Russia's foreign policy moves, at least in relation to to Ukraine and, you know, the sort of anti NATO a trajectory that uh, Putin ended up taking uh, after the Munich Security Conference in 2007, where he really became uh, a target for imperialism. And, you know, he started to be portrayed in Western media as a pariah and a dictator and so on and so forth. So I want to know the context in which his uh, being open to uh, representatives of Wahhabism uh because I think that that might maybe explain because he's he has uh, shifted his views on a lot of things. I mean, I know in the, the 1990s, for example, he was very, very critical of China. And um, I know that he's changed his position a, a lot on that issue as well, where, you know, now he's very much uh, supportive of Belt and Road. And he actually argues that Russia needs to um you know, develop closer bilateral relations with China and that China, China's Belt and Road is actually very much a part of, uh, you know, the Eurasian project. So um, 
one valid critique of him could definitely be that he's he's shifted his views a lot over the years. But uh, again, as you're saying, if if the worst thing you can say about him is that he's too open. Um, I mean, I just think it's ironic that, <laughs> you know, he's he's called a fascist um, and uh, here he is being called. Uh, he identifies as a traditionalist, but he's being called uh, too too uh, loose or too open a traditionalist or not not a good enough not conservative enough of a Christian. And then also he's called a fascist, but then, uh, you know, in, 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 in the comment section on uns.com in my article, virtually everyone that self identifies as far right is calling him a liberal. Um, I don't know if you bothered to go through some yeah, of Yeah, I, I did look at some of those. Yeah. So yeah. He's a fascist and he's, he's wildly unpopular in on the far right, uh, comment section at uns.com. So I just, I just think that that's kind of an incredible irony. I mean, um, but then, you know, he's he's pissing everybody off. He must be doing something right. Yeah. I mean, and then you get these people who say, um, you know, I got, I got some email from this Trotskyist person that was saying that, you know, Dugan, uh, that I wasn't being honest about his political history and that, uh, you know, he actually, uh, you know, at a certain point in his history, he realized that he couldn't be, you know, an out in the open Hitlerite. And so he started disguising his political views in this sort of rebranded, uh, slick version of, uh, of, uh, uh, far right politics. I mean, it's just, the guy has so many different things to so many different people. Uh, but no one is accepting his actual, you know, no one's taking a look at his actual words and his writing and judging his political views, you know, as he as he says them, uh, which is what I tried to do in the piece. I read his work, tried to judge it objectively, you know, even though I am I do identify as a Marxist. And uh, I found a great deal of overlap between my own views and his, even though I, you know, there's fundamental disagreements I have with him, especially philosophically about you know, uh, historical progress and, and things like that. You know, he's very much someone that, that considers, uh, you know, these, these different, uh, uh, civilizations as under threat from globalization, which of course I, uh, to a large extent sympathize with, but, uh, he seems to, uh, believe that, uh, you know, historical progress itself is kind of a threat to that. And that, you know, we need to, I mean, he's very sympathetic to the indigenous, for example. And uh, actually, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, has gotten him, you know, uh, where he's gotten attacks and critiques from from people on the right. So, yeah, he's so many different things to so many different people. And uh, yeah, he really does seem to be pissing everybody off. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I just found a great deal of insight in his writing. And at the very least, I, I came out of it knowing that uh, what I was being told about this uh, figure was not true and uh, he's definitely being mischaracterized as this bogeyman and on top of that even if he is uh, you know as diabolical as they're claiming uh, the irony of all this is that there's still not even any evidence that he's ever even met Vladimir Putin uh, much less allowed him to be his uh you know, his ideological, his, his brain, they, they call him Putin's brain. I mean, come on, Putin, uh, of all of the national leaders that I know of, uh, he's one of those who obviously has his own brain. Exactly. 
and a very scholarly one at that. If you've ever read any of his his work, I mean, that he's penned himself explaining why he's making these decisions. And um, if Dugan has influenced that, I mean, I suppose that's possible considering he's a he is a prominent philosopher. But on the other hand, I've heard from, you know, people who are in more in the know uh, in Russian politics than myself, who said that Dugan is really shrugged off as like this, you know, like a marginal figure who's really not anywhere near as influential as as he's made out to be. And that he's, uh, you know, really amplified and, and just elevated beyond uh, what he actually is in reality within Russia itself. But, of course, whatever Russian people have to say or whatever, uh, you know, any accurate assessment of uh, of Russian politics is is always going to come from some Western mouthpiece. It's not going to come from people that actually know this. So as a, as a Western commentator, I try and listen to what people who are actually within you know, Russia or Russian politics are saying about this. And that's that's the impression that I get that that uh, his his influence is really overstated. But even well, if he's, he may be more influential in the in the West and you know, they, they just banned his books from Amazon. And so maybe when they tried to kill him and then they did kill his daughter in front of him, that they they were trying to kill an idea, not so much because that idea was successful in Russia, but because of its influence in the West. Yeah, either way, he's become a symbol. I mean, he whether whether he really is within Russia or not, he's he's giving an uh, philosophical voice to, you know, Russia's perspective on on uh, the way that they uh, interpret, uh, you know, NATO's hostility and its encirclement and, um, you know, the, the West's ultimate goal and in conquering Eurasia and, and conducting regime change in Moscow and having a, you know, another uh, pliant uh, comprador uh, figure who's just going to allow uh, the West to, to plunder the, you know, Russia's uh, energy resources and its economy and, uh, you know, uh, uh, maintain American uh, hegemony. And, you know, his, I mean, that's that's that to me is the the ultimate uh, irony is that, you know, his his the whole basis of his of his political theory is that we need a harmony of of uh, of uh, nations and that there shouldn't be one uh, one uh, polar one one pillar of uh, or one uh, one nation dominating the globe. There should be. mutual cooperation and benefit and, and many, many poles, many civilizations, not one uh, dominating the rest of the planet. And at no point does he advocate any kind of expansionism or Russian re- revanchism. I mean, he's not advocating that, uh, you know, the United that Russia retake Alaska from the United States or anything like that. I mean, it's just absurd that he's characterized as a fascist. I mean, there, he, at no point does he argue anything about ethnic supremacy or and quite the contrary. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's against the Americans imposing their particular sort of ethnic values on the whole world. Yeah, I mean, it, it very, very quickly, just upon reading his work, it became very apparent why he was being characterized this way, because he really holds a mirror 
up to, in particular, liberalism, um, and it's, as he says, inherently racist. I mean, they're so fond of uh, labeling everything racist, but their own racist view of the world, that um, th their own uh, Euro or Western-centric view uh, that, you know, globalism can enforce, um, you know, Western capitalism or Western uh, so-called democracy onto the rest of the world and just wipe out civilizations around the world that have their own way of life, their own uh, thousand-year-old collectivistic way of life, as he sees it uh, in Eurasia or Russia. And uh, not, so nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, he's very much a conservative. So if that's what your idea of fascism is, then yes, he's a fascist. But that's not what fascism is. So I also tried to at least give the Marxist definition of what fascism is. Uh, I know there, there are many other perspectives on that. but um, So really, I tried to, as much as possible, um, uh, lay, lay all this out, this history and this misunderstanding of Dugan. But it's, it's so rich in... Uh, in content that I probably could write a whole other piece about it, but I don't know. Like I said, like I was telling you uh, via email, um, uh, this piece actually was originally intended for, for uh, another uh, website, but it was, which I won't name, but it was, uh, it was uh, censored by the editorial board. The, the senior editor at this particular website, this left wing website, um, you know, going back to the left and censorship, as we were discussing earlier. Um, yeah, this, this, uh, this article was supposed to appear there. The, the senior editor had approved it. And uh, the day that it was supposed to be published, the editorial board um, flagged it. And uh, one of whom I'm told was a, a, is a producer at Democracy Now!, actually, which is speaking of left-wing... Uh, uh, outlets that have really gone downhill. Um, yeah, and they, they just did not even want to allow this piece to come out. You know, no discussion, no editorial changes, no nothing. Just, we're not going to let you publish this. So that's how much of a threat any kind of uh, real discussion of Alexander Dugan is. And so... Hmm. Well, I mean, well then, what they, then what do they try to kill him? Then what do they uh, ban him from Amazon? <laughs> They're they're making him dangerous, you know. If they, it's you know, it's just like with Trump. If they would leave him alone, maybe the ideas wouldn't spread. But by persecuting him, they're bringing attention to the ideas, and that controversy is going to drive interest. Yeah, if you're referring to his uh, this indictment, I mean, which I assume you are. I mean, I really agree with you. I mean, I I, I think ultimately it will like all this this political persecution of him, I think it's really going to backfire ultimately um, because yeah, it's putting him back in the headlines. Yeah. And he's not going to, um, it doesn't prevent him from running. And uh, I would, I, I really don't think that he's, he's going to uh, do any time or, or, or go to jail for the, for this. So I, I just, uh, it's just as spectacular how much the the liberal elite are uh, are just uh, digging their own grave and are continuing to do so. I mean, with this political perse persecution of Trump, because it's and you know uh, Dugan himself said that uh, 
uh, uh, Putin or uh, Trump was the, uh, you know, as imperfect as he is, um, uh, having someone that wants to scale back, uh, at least relatively, uh, U.S. Uh, you know, endless adventurism and and wars uh, was the best hope for any kind of multipolar world really truly developing was having some uh, a right wing populist or uh, someone like a figure like Trump uh, become president. Now, of course, Trump didn't really deliver on a lot of that stuff, though he didn't start any uh, new wars, per se. Of course, he, uh, he lucked out when the Soleimani uh, assassination didn't blow up into World War Three. Yeah, I mean, if, if he should be arrested for anything, in my view, it's it's committing that or ordering that act of terrorism. I mean, the 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 thing that's going to supposedly sink him is him paying off a porn star a hush money. I mean, it's just absurd. Yeah. I mean, well, while George W. Bush is walking around uh, free, having being responsible for the deaths of a million Iraqis, and uh, you know, as uh, as I'm sure you think, uh, and I, I tend to believe, I'm not as as 100% sure as yourself, but certainly had some involvement, if not outright uh, uh, involvement in, in 9-11 and, and the death. Yeah, I, I think Bush probably didn't know very much about it, but uh, he certainly was complicit, uh, especially in the aftermath. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and and all the, the 20, over 20 years of wars that have been waged since then, illegal wars, so... He's walking around, but, you know, I can I can liberals can uh, sleep easy knowing that that Donald Trump has been indicted. Yeah. For, for yeah, Obama destroyed Libya uh, and caused untold suffering there uh, and set the stage for what we're seeing now in Ukraine and set the stage for you know, the Syrian war. Mm -hmm. uh, so and then what Biden is doing now, I mean, you add all of it up and actually, you know, Trump doesn't look any worse than anybody else, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, if you were a real, honest, America first right wing populist who was competent enough to scale back the empire, I would actually like him. But unfortunately, he wasn't. I, I, did you read Woodward's account of Trump going up against the foreign policy establishment and they drag him into the situation room and they show him a PowerPoint and they're sure they're going to convince him to come around to their way of thinking. And, and he comes out of it, you know, saying this is ridiculous. You know, why can't we spend this money for American infrastructure? Uh, so he, I mean, he, I think his heart was in the right place and still is probably in a lot of these areas. But he didn't seem to have the competence to actually get very much done. Yeah, I don't think that um, I don't know if it's a question of sincerity. I just don't think I think that he latched on to something uh, that was happening as an American phenomenon and he he gave it a voice. I don't know how serious his own uh, political convictions were in terms of commitment to, you know, America first scaling back wars, rebuilding infrastructure, so on and so forth. I think that he rode that wave. And that's what's propelled his political success. But, you know, even with the stuff involving Russia, I mean, he he uh, championed uh, detente with Moscow and he in the end, he didn't really deliver on any of it. And he's still kind of, uh, you know, through rhetoric, he's able to still hang on to, you know, the things that uh, got him elected in the first place. But he you know, he didn't really deliver. I don't think 
he'll really deliver again. I mean, maybe he might try harder if he does get reelected, but uh, I mean, I pretty much share your sentiment. If he was actually sincere about at least some of the things that he, he campaigned on, uh, I might like him, but ultimately I think he's just an opportunist. And I, and I think a lot of these, these right wing uh, populist figures, even in the European union, um, you know, are, are really kind of opportunistic. I mean, Maloney in Italy is just kind of like the latest example. Um, and uh, as a phenomenon, I mean, the really big turnoff to me about them, aside from their insincerity is, and this is the aspect of Trump, especially that never gets talked about is the, uh, the rabid Zionism. I mean, the oh, very, yeah. the very yeah. worst thing about him is never the thing that gets discussed. It's, He's yeah, yeah it, Israel, it was Israel, not Russia, that put him in the White House. Absolutely, absolutely. Sheldon Adelson. Yep. Yeah. Well, if they uh, charge him with that, then I'm I'm with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, this is it's just a, a pathetic circus, like so much of what the establishment is doing these days. Well, thank you, Max Perry. It's a really good article, good conversation. The article is entitled "Alexander Dugan and the Origins of the Red Brown Alliance Myth." Highly recommended along with the rest of your work. It's at the UNZ.com. So thank you so much, and I look forward to bringing you back on the show. Anytime. Thank you, Kevin, for having me. I really appreciate it. Great talk. Okay. Take care. That's Max Perry. I'm Kevin Barrett. This is Truth Jihad Radio. TruthJihad.com and KevinBarrett.substack.com are the websites. See you all next week. Inshallah.